0: Frederick Courtney Salu, hunter, naturalist, rider, trailblazer, and soldier, was killed in combat on January 4, 1917, at Beho Beho, East Africa, serving in the British Army's World War I campaign to corral the forces of German General Paul von Leto Vorbeck. He was, remarkably, 64 years old. Theodore Roosevelt eulogized his friend. He led a singularly adventurous and fascinating life with just the right alternations between the wilderness and civilization. He helped spread the borders of his people's land. He added much to the sum of human knowledge and interest. He closed his life exactly as such a life ought to be closed by dying in battle for his country while rendering her valiant and effective service. Who could wish a better life or a better death or desire to leave a more honorable heritage to his family and his nation. Now Roosevelt's typically eloquent eulogy for Frederick Courtney Salu was a fitting tribute for a man who was widely regarded as the mightiest of the African hunters of the late 19th and early 20th century. The mere fact that such a eulogy was made by a former president of the United States, a man who was... A fan of Frederick Courtney Salou's writing and a man who called him a friend shows how far Salou's fame had spread. Now, it's not to debunk Salou's legend to question his his place at the pinnacle of the the African hunter food chain. The man himself knew better. He knew many boar hunters who just passed into obscurity, whose hunting expertise and exploits far outshone his own. As his recent biographer, Norman Etherington, writes, Was he truly the mightiest of hunters? Most of the large, dangerous animals he killed were shot during his first decade in South Africa. 78 elephants, over 100 buffaloes, and something like 20 rhinoceros. Over the next decade, he added 20 elephants, a few rhinos, several hippos, and more buffaloes. In 1908, he reckoned that over his lifetime he had killed 31 lions. Most of the rest of the animals he shot were giraffes and zebras shot for their meat, and a large number of antelopes collected as specimens to be mounted. Taken together, these were modest totals. Older professional hunters like George Wood, Pete Jacobs, and Cornelius Van Ruin had much, much larger bags of elephants, We cannot begin to count the numbers felled by Griequa and and other African hunters. Where Salou outclassed his contemporaries was in writing about the business. He made the animals and the chase come alive for readers in an age that valorized hunting and hunters. That's fair enough. Um, The size of a hunter's bag was a bit of an obsession for the Victorians, and I find it a little bit odd that Etherington focused in on that as, as the measure of a mighty hunter, um, because he's just reverting to that Victorian standard. In my estimation, it's not really relevant to the measure of a man. I will tell you off the top that Frederick Courtney Salu is one of my favorite frontier partisans, precisely because he got just the right alternations between wilderness and civilization. My greatest appreciation is for those frontier partisans who wielded the pen as well as the rifle. And I felt a connection to Salou since I first discovered his writing when I was a teenager. And that was thanks to safari raconteur Peter Hathaway Capstick, who featured a chapter on Salou in his second book, Death in the Silent Places. I know that that, uh, Capstick has his detractors, But there's no disputing that he turned a whole generation on to historic African adventure, myself included. So, a tip of the hat to Peter Hathaway capstick. So story, along with that of Frederick Russell Burnham, who we'll also meet in this series, expanded my conception of the frontier beyond North America. For me, he seemed a lot like Daniel Boone a full century plus later, And on the other side of the world, here is this passionate hunter who ultimately led pioneers to settle up his favorite hunting grounds. What I would later come to understand is the the frontiersman's paradox. This realization that there was a whole world of frontier history in southern Africa really shaped my interest and approach to all of this history that uh, we cover on the Frontier Partisans blog and this podcast, right up to, to this moment. Just as a side note, I'm especially fond of Salou because he played a good game of tennis, which is a factoid that I like to trot out when uh, when I encounter someone who finds that my love for that game is incongruous with my other passions. So now let, let's dig into the real, remarkable life of frontier partisan Frederick Courtney Salu. Those who found the flame of adventure lit by reading Peter Hathaway Capstick are actually part of a very long tradition. Salu's own longing for Africa started with a book. You might say it's a dangerous thing to pick up a book, especially for a young, impressionable boy with a restless spirit And uh, picking up the wrong sort of book can lead a lad down paths undreamed of, fill his head with notions of a life of adventure in exotic lands. And that's what happened to young Fred. According to his, his good friend and biographer, John Millay, he often admitted in Afterlife that the one book which definitely sent him to Africa and made him a pioneer and hunter of big game was Baldwin's African Hunting from Natal to the Zambezi, published in 1864. So Fred was born of French Huguenot descent, a people that keeps cropping up in in uh, podcast after podcast, uh, ending up on on frontiers. And he, he was born into a pretty genteel, upper-middle-class British life. His father was a stockbroker and... Uh, and he was cut out for a comfortable British life of upper class, upper middle class, rather, um, professional. But it became pretty clear that that he was not cut out for that sort of life. He was constantly in trouble in his boarding school, not because he was a bad kid, but because he was restless and, and high spirited and was addicted to the out, outdoors and fascinated by the natural world. Um, Etherington, his biographer, argues that that Salu kind of narrativized his his boarding school days to conform to the the story of Tom Brown's School Days, which was a very popular novel during the the Victorian era, and sort of set himself up as as the the good bad schoolboy. Um, I think that's probably true. Um, you know, he kind of set himself up in, in, into that paradigm, but he really was that sort of, of kid. And, um, his family, uh, sent him to Europe to study and to Germany. And, um, he got into some trouble there. He loved to ramble in the forest and, and, uh, Salou was always really interested in, in in birds and butterflies. He wasn't just a, a big game hunter. He he loved um, all aspects of the natural world. And uh, he loved rambling in these German forests. And on one excursion, he came out with some bird's eggs in his pocket, which was poaching. Um, and a forest warden accosted him because even in, in that uh, mid-19th century era, the German forests were very heavily... Regulated. And this warden tried to, to basically take Fred into custody, and he didn't like being manhandled, so he punched the forest warden and decked him. And that was a serious business. He had just assaulted a, uh, a government official in Germany, and that was a, a serious offense, and he had to actually flee the country to avoid prosecution. And he spent some time in um, in Austria, um, and then eventually persuaded his family to fund an expedition to Africa. Um, he just couldn't get that out of out of his mind and his heart, and that was his heart's desire. Seems likely that his family just decided, well, let's send him and see if he can get this out of his system now. Um, so. He was still a teenager, I think 19 years old, when he headed out for, for what was then England's wildest frontier in South Africa. As Malay notes, on the 4th of September 1871, Salu landed at Algoa Bay with 400 pounds in his pocket. He went there determined to make his way into the interior and to lead the free life of a hunter. So, 400 pounds was a pretty decent sum of money um, at, at that time, and... Uh, he was fortunate to have it. It was enough for him to put together an outfit and round up some companions for this, this trek into the interior. And uh, rounding up an outfit would include the purchase of some wagons. The hunting wagon was a, uh, a key element of uh, technology for these guys. Uh, they, they weren't just riding out on horseback with a pack train or anything like that. They had uh, these ox-drawn wagons of substantial size and very stout that they would haul their gear in um, and uh, store their, um, their ivory, the, t- the elephant tusks that they took, and uh, other game parts. And also it would become their sleeping quarters. So these wagons were, were essential, and, and Salu was able to purchase a couple of those and, uh, and the tools of his trade uh, which would be firearms. And, uh, the primary tool, even in 1871 for the hunting of elephants was a big heavy board muzzle loader, um, four board called, uh, the roar. And then, that, um, that's the, the boar term for it. And, uh, these four bores threw a ball that was almost an inch in diameter and, uh, usually of lead hardened with antimony so that it would uh, would penetrate a little better. And in the 1870s, those were still the most effective guns on elephants, but they were not so easy on the shooter. Um, properly set up, you could absorb this very heavy recoil, but in a hunting scenario when you're chasing through the brush after an elephant and very very seldom would you ever bring an elephant down with one shot so you you'd hit the elephant you'd have to chase it and f- make follow-up shots flinging that that roar to your shoulder after a hard run and firing it you know you might not be well set up to absorb the recoil and it would kick the hell out of you and uh salu used that for, for almost all of his elephant hunting, um, but he, he hated the roars. He told Malay, They kicked most frightfully, and in my case, the punishment I received from these guns has affected my nerves to such an extent as to have materially influenced my shooting ever since, and I am heartily sorry I ever had anything to do with them. Like uh, some of the other great frontier partisans of the muzzleloading era, like Simon Kenton and Samuel Brady and Lou Wetzel, Salu mastered the art of reloading on the run. And uh, in his case, the, uh, those earlier frontiersmen were reloading a, a flintlock. Um, in Salu's case, these were, were percussion cap pieces. So, um, but essentially, it's the same, the same skill, and it requires a whole lot of coordination and, uh, and practice. And it's indicative of, of a fact that was, was well remarked upon at the time, which was that, that Salu was a, an exceptional athlete and particularly noted for his running ability. But it's very important to understand that Salu didn't just become a successful elephant hunter on his own. Um, he, he essentially served an apprenticeship with a uh, a mixed race man known as Cigar. Uh, this this man was known to white hunters as Cigar the Hottentot, or uh, more pejoratively, Cigar the Half Cast Scoundrel. Um, he was uh, before he took up elephant hunting. He had been a jockey, uh, in, on racehorses in, in the city of Grahamstown in, uh, in Southern Africa, in the Cape. And, uh, and he became a, an elephant hunter. He, um, worked with a very well-known elephant hunter named, uh, William Finati. And, uh, we'll probably encounter him. Again, a little bit uh, a little bit further down the line in this in this series because he does figure in uh, in some of the early history of, of Rhodesia. But at, at any rate, um, Cigar ended up uh, joining Salu on his his first elephant hunt, and um, I'm going to read a, a passage from Etherington describing Salu's first elephant kill. Success came quickly. They shot and dined upon a big eland bull the first night out, and next morning pushed into country recently ravished by elephants. Among the broken trees and trampled ground, they picked up a fresh spore, which Cigar recognized as that of an old bull. To his evident delight, Fred spotted him first, his huge head towering above the thick bush while ears flapped gently to and fro. He was clearly unaware of their presence, which gave them some time to prepare for a chase, They slipped off their trousers and ventured out clad only in long flannel shirts, underwear, and boots. They advanced to within 50 yards before the bull, sensing the threat, wheeled to face them. Cigar gallantly whispered to Fred to take his first shot, which he directed at the shoulder. With a roar, the elephant plunged into the thickets. Fearing that he might lose the trail, Salu ran after him without even taking time to reload. When Cigar managed another hit, the great beast turned upon them just as Fred was recharging his muzzleloader. His second shot to the shoulder brought the bull down, crashing down. Cigar administered the coup de grace. Salou's first elephant was a whopper, with tusks weighing a total of more than 118 pounds. Because Cigar had given him the first shot and he had brought it down, the hunter's code decreed the ivory was his. That night, he helped slice and roast the enormous heart. 22 pounds or so, which he henceforth esteemed as the greatest delicacy an African hunter is likely to enjoy. So Cigar taught Salu the ropes as an elephant hunter, and through the 1870s, Salu hunted in the interior of Africa, including north of the Limpopo River in what would become Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe. Mostly hunting for ivory, which was the 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 cash uh, crop, if you will, of uh, of the day. Um, similar to uh, whitetail deer skins in the long hunter era, and the beaver in the Rocky Mountain fur trade era, um, ivory was was big business, and uh, the hunters both shot for ivory and traded with the native peoples for ivory, which was turned into every kind of uh, thing, from piano keys to billiard balls to all sorts of things in uh, in Victorian-era Europe. But like beaver trapping or long hunting, it was a very difficult and precarious way to make a living. All sorts of things could go wrong, from bad weather to being robbed to um, simply not finding the animals that you were hunting for, and uh, things were pretty up and down for Salou. He uh, he had some success, but uh, the white gold thing never made him rich, and when you calculated it all out for the decade of the 1870s, he... Uh, He really didn't have much to show for a decade of of hard work other than his wagons, his rifles, and a fund of amazing stories. And it was the stories that would bring him an income and ultimately make him famous. Um, In the Victorian era, um, in England especially, but it was true also in, in continental Europe and the United States, writing a book... And going out on the lecture circuit was the the equivalent of having a, a reality TV show. It made, it made you famous, and sometimes it made you both famous and rich. And uh, in 1881, Salu published his first book titled A Hunter's Wanderings in Africa, which is considered a classic in African hunting literature. And it, it deserves that. Um, Etherington goes into a, a great deal of detail about how he, uh, Salou, took um, his journal entries and sort of, of narrativized them into A uh, Hunter's Wanderings and then his, his subsequent books. And uh, he, he had considerable skill with this. And unlike a lot of Victorian writers, his writing style, which is pretty straightforward, um, is still very readable today. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a fan. Roosevelt wrote a letter to Salu after reading Hunter's Wanderings in Africa and said, you have the most extraordinary power of seeing things with minute accuracy of detail and then the equally necessary power to describe vividly and accurately what you have seen. And uh, the two would correspond and um, ultimately meet more than once. Um, they were truly kindred spirits because they were both keen naturalists as well as hunters. And uh, ultimately, both would become interested in conservation and uh, the effort to preserve the wild natural world that they loved and had also had a hand in uh, in damaging and potentially destroying. So they they both turned their hand in different ways to conservation later in life. But Roosevelt was a big fan, and a lot of people were were big fans. The uh, Salou was able to establish a uh, a pattern where he would spend a part of his year in the field and a part of his year riding and out on the lecture circuit, and um, and that's how he made his living. And he actually did better with the books and the lectures than he did in terms of, of profit directly from his hunting. Salu would continue hunting in southern Africa uh, through the 1880s, always looking for New territories that hadn't been shot out. Um, again, it just reminds me very much of the Rocky Mountain fur trappers continuing to, to hunt for unspoiled beaver streams that they could uh, then trap out, um, or the long hunters uh, continually uh, pushing further and deeper into the uh, trans-Appalachian uh, west in, in search of, of hunting grounds. Uh, Malay wrote, Like all big game hunters, Salu always dreamed of a land teeming with game where other hunters had not been and scared the game away. He saw by this time, this would be the 1880s, that the old hunting grounds, at least as far as elephants were concerned, were finished, and that he must find a place for himself, a new field to exploit if such a place existed. And so in... in, uh, in the Americas, that was usually heading further west. In in southern Africa, it was usually heading further north, and um, and Salou kept pushing in that direction um, toward the Zambezi River. And uh, during that period, also, it seems pretty clear that uh, that he had at least one relationship with at least one native woman, and almost certainly um, he had children with, with these women. Uh, this was something that uh, he never wrote about. Um, it was something that Victorian society would have, have uh, studiously ignored, um, very common in all frontier cultures. And we talked about it before in previous series on the, the Highland Scots, for example. Um, in the fur trade in Canada, um, many of them had uh, what they would call country wives. Um, this was true of the French as well, and uh, it was true in the African in the African bush as well. And uh, Etherington talks in some detail about what little we know about this aspect of Salu's life. There is a single precious paragraph in the papers of another hunter, James Dawson, that shines a light into the, an obscure corner of Salu's domestic arrangements. In March 1888, Maurice Heaney, late of the U.S. Cavalry, told Dawson, Salu got into Shosheng on the 27th. He brought his woman down with him and means to get rid of her. She did not care to go into Zambezi, and he did not press her. He keeps the children." While at Shoshong, he messed, which means he dined, with Borrow and I, and he saw much of him. He is a grand fellow in every respect. Etherington notes uh, a little bit snidely that uh, that Salu may indeed have been a grand fellow, but when he wrote his his second book, which was titled Travel and Adventure in Southeast Africa in 1893, Salu was engaged to be married to an English vicar's 19-year-old daughter. He had pressing reasons to leave big gaps in the record of the 1880s. (laughs) Um, Yes, indeed. Was his woman tall, short, or medium? Young and pretty? We can't say. Was she Shona, Ndebele, or Tiswana? We don't know. Despite the known unknowns, Stephen Taylor who spotted Haney's letter in the National Archives of Zimbabwe, felt justified in making some assumptions and deductions. She was probably African because otherwise she would not have been called his woman. There must have been at least two offspring to justify the reference to children. The youngest must have been well beyond the age of breastfeeding, otherwise Salu would not have contemplated keeping the child, nor would he have taken an interest in children he had not fathered. Going further, we can calculate the gap between the births of the children as 10 months at the very least. That means that the relationship must date back to 1884 or earlier. On the other hand, it almost certainly commenced after his return from England in 1881. No way could he have settled an African family in Port Elizabeth in plain sight of racist white settlers. Taylor reasons that she was probably a Tswana woman because Haney learnt of Salu's intention to discard her at the Tswana's king's capital. That does not necessarily settle the question. Shoshong was a cosmopolitan place harboring displaced people from distant regions. Nor can we say for certain that Salu carried out his intention there. What was meant by Haney's statement, he keeps the children? Does it mean he intended to keep them with him, in which case they almost certainly would have perished on his expedition to the Zambezi a few months later when he nearly lost his own life? Or does it mean merely that he would keep them in the sense of providing for their well-being? Etherington rightly um, acknowledges how little we actually know about this. I think we know enough to to be pretty certain that uh, Salu did indeed um, adhere to the custom of the country um, and had at least one uh, native wife, uh, concubine, um, however uh, you, you prefer to, to look at it. Um, my guess is that probably he keeps the children did mean that he um, provided materially for them. Um, certainly they, they don't show up later on in his life. So and and uh, and Etherington's right, if if they did accompany him to the Zambezi um in his uh later expedition in the eighteen eighties, they would have died because uh we know that uh that only a few members of that expedition survived. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But um, in in the Victorian era, of course, this would be a scandal. We look at things considerably differently now. Um, you know, maybe our interest is a little bit prurient, but um, I think mostly we're looking for a a more real and authentic uh, look at uh, who these these folks were. And uh, and again, this this sort of relationship was the norm, and the the dissolving of such relationships was also very common. Some Relationships of, of white hunters and frontiersmen with native women were lasting, and, uh, and some were not. And uh, Etherington, I think, rather astutely uh, includes a, a pretty fiery passage from Salu um, in which uh, the hunter cites H.T. Buckle's History of Civilization in England, defending um, the hunters and traders. Of Central Africa. And here he is. By bringing a better class of guns, powder, and every other species of trading goods into the country, the Englishman beat his competitors out of the market, and thus did more to put an end to the slave trade carried on along the central Zambezi by Portuguese subjects, and to raise the name of Englishman amongst the natives, than all the pamphlets of the stay at home Aborigines protectionists who comfortably seated in the depths of their armchairs before a blazing fire, are continually thundering forth denunciations against the rapacious British colonists and the low, immoral trader who exerts such a baneful influence upon the chaste and guileless savages of the interior. I speak feelingly, as I am proud to rank myself as one of that little body of English and Scotch men who as traders and elephant hunters in central South Africa have certainly, whatever may be their failings in other respects, kept up the name of Englishman amongst the natives for all that is upright and honest. In the words of Buckle, we are neither monks nor saints, but only men. And I think that speaks truly across frontiers and across time. Um, and that's probably enough said on this on the subject. That passage is also Pretty revealing of where Salu was coming from um, in terms of his relationship to the broader geopolitical events that were, were shaping the future of South Africa at this time. When he first arrived in, in the Cape, diamonds had been discovered in, uh, in Kimberley. And actually he uh, he had gone to the, the diamond diggings and, and he was not interested at all in trying to make his fortune that way. Um, but that discovery and then uh, later in the 1880s, the, the discovery of gold in uh, the Witswater Rand um, in South Africa would vastly change the continent because um, suddenly this this interior of South Africa that was more of a pain in the neck for the British Empire than, um, than it was worth, really, um, suddenly became very valuable. It became one of the richest places on the globe. And uh, so a lot of tensions began to, uh, to make themselves felt between the British and the Boers who um, had... Settled in the Orange Free State and the Transvaal to get away from British authority, and also between the British and other European powers, the Portuguese in in Mozambique being one, um, but also the Germans who were were starting to make their presence felt in Africa. And uh, Salu, like a lot of other hunters, would find himself caught up in this sort of imperial race for territory, what became known as, as the scramble for Africa. But again, this is a pretty common phenomenon. Um, you know, Daniel Boone did not intend to be the pioneer of American settlement of the West. It sort of just evolved that way out of his passion for hunting, much like Salou. And I think Salou's situation is is highly analogous to Daniel Boone's and in his case um he would become intimately involved in the settlement of what would become Rhodesia it's very clear from the passage that Etherington quoted there at length in which I just I just read and in other writings that Salu truly believed that uh Whatever its mistakes and missteps, which he was he was willing to acknowledge, the British Empire was a force for good in the world, and that the extension of that empire would bring peace and enlightenment and prosperity to peoples who were groaning under native tyrannies. Um, Salu was very sympathetic to the Mashona people who were subject to the the. Ndabele or Matabili as as they were called at that time who were a strong militant people who who basically preyed upon the Mashona and uh from from Salu's perspective the British empire could um could take peoples like the Mashona out from under that native tyranny um to some extent, perhaps that's a justification for, um, and a gloss on imperial ambitions, but, uh, you know, people can have mixed motives. And, uh, I think that, that, that belief was sincere, not just on Salu's part, but on the part of, of a large number of imperialists. So as we move into the, the 1880s, um, Salu's hunting expeditions took on uh, a slightly uh, different tinge, and that was true of, of a lot of hunters. Historian and blogger Jenny Bennett notes that, quote, the hunting expeditions of the late 1880s described by Salu in his popular books often had a second objective. The exploration of areas believed to be rich in minerals and the obtaining of concessions, end quote. And she means concessions from native uh Native leaders, native chiefs and kings um, to allow the exploration for minerals. Um, we mentioned earlier that uh, Salu nearly lost his life in an expedition on the, the Zambezi. Um, that is uh, that is in fact the case. Um, in 1888, he uh, he was hunting in the Zambezi area with a fairly large um, contingent of fellow hunters, um, including, uh, Zulus and other, um, other native hunters who were partners with him actually. Um, and the, the disruptions of the slave trade and of the gun trade and, um, just the, the migration of, and movement of peoples had created a situation where there were was, uh, a lot of intertribal conflict and, uh, and civil wars going on amongst native peoples. And, uh, Salou's expedition kind of got caught up in, in a situation, um, where they were under threat from a variety of different peoples and, and there was no real safe place to hunt. And they ended up being, uh, being accosted and robbed of, of virtually everything. Um, they escaped without, uh, um they escaped being killed outright um just by the skin of their teeth but uh the party was actually attacked in camp and scattered into the bush and Salu lost his his rifle um a a uh, a tribesman snatched it out of his of his hands and he he couldn't fight for it he was outnumbered and he had to run and uh he didn't know what had happened to his companions and uh, they all made their way eventually southward um and uh and filtered into uh, a a mission and uh and most of them survived some of them didn't make it uh so this was a a a very close call for Salu um and and it was really his last significant uh Hunting expedition, he did re-outfit and go back out again, um, but uh, by this time things had changed a great deal. It was dangerous, and uh, and there were imperial games afoot that uh, that would attract his attention. Cecil Rhodes, who uh, had consolidated the diamond fields in uh, in Kimberley um, into the the De Beers. Corporation, um, which would dominate the diamond trade all the way up to today, I guess. Um, he had become one of the, the richest men in the world, and he had great imperial ambitions. And uh, amongst those ambitions, or key actually to those ambitions, was uh, creating a, uh, a mining colony north of the Limpopo River. And in a complicated series of maneuvers that, that we may get into uh, at some point further on in the series, he was able to secure a concession from the Nbele king Lobangula for um, the area that was known as land that the Nbele ruled over. And uh, in 1890... Salu was uh, was recruited to help cut a road into that massive Land mineral concession, and uh, he was selected uh, much like Daniel Boone was selected to to cut the Wilderness Road because he knew the routes, he knew the country so well because of his his hunting experience. And uh, Salu wasn't really just working under Rhodes' orders; he was a, a player in in this pioneering project, and and. He had really bought into it, both uh, literally and, and psychologically. The route into Mishonaland land was apparently Salu's idea, according to Malay. Salu then laid before him, meaning Rhodes, his idea of cutting a road passing from the southeast of Matabililand, due north to the Portuguese frontier. This scheme, Rhodes did not at first approve of, but he afterward accepted it in its entirety. So this pioneering of what would soon become Rhodesia was a semi-private commercial endeavor. This wasn't a, a British imperial project. It was a, a a crown-chartered company that was doing this, was, uh, the British South Africa Company, which people usually um, just refer to as the chartered company. This had been um through the eighteenth or the seventeenth and eighteenth century, a, a pretty common thing. the east india company was was such a company. And actually, again, in that Daniel Boone um, analogy, the first effort to settle Kentucky was conducted uh, by the Transylvania Company, which actually didn't really have legal sanction, but it was a a a, a private concern. Um led by uh Judge Richard Henderson and Boone was working for henderson so this this notion of private companies undertaking these sort of imperial land grabs was a pretty common frontier phenomenon all through from the seventeenth all the way up to the very end of the the nineteenth century um then Bailey or or Bailey, and we'll call them Matabele for the for the moment because that's how they were known in uh In the era, Um, they grudgingly allowed Salu's road-building crew to penetrate into Mashona land. Lobengula knew Salu; he had granted him the rights to hunt in uh, in his territory, and uh, and he found Salu annoying because he knew that Salu had long been an advocate for the rights of the Mashona. And as far as Lobengulu was concerned, the Mashona were just his, his cattle. Um, and so he found Salu pretty impertinent and annoying. Um, and now he was leading a column of, of road builders into, his, uh, into land that he claimed. And uh, it's worth noting that, that Salu's sympathy with the Mashona really reflects um, a, a high degree of sympathy for the native peoples that he worked with for all of his hunting career. Remember that, uh, that he served his apprenticeship under a mixed race man, Cigar. um, And he, he regarded him highly. He, he called him the best shot in Africa. And, and uh, he, he had high regard for him. Um, Almost all of his hunting companions and partners through the 1870s and eighties were, were native people. And, uh, and he had had, um, as we noted a, uh, a relationship with at least one native woman. Um, so Salu thought well of, of the Africans and he was not, uh, by any means a, uh, well, gosh, I, you know, I almost said he was not by any means a racist and, and that's probably, you know, by our standards, not true. Um, but again, it's kind of a, a of a complicated thing. Um, in his time, Salu would have been considered very much a liberal on race matters. From our perspective, we would see that as as a paternalistic kind of of liberality. Um, he definitely believed that the the blacks in Africa would benefit from living under British rule, and that they ought to be grateful to have it. Um, we'll see later on that uh, he was v- deeply angered when uh, the Matabele rebelled against British authority. Um, but we have to remember that that in his era, um, the most pernicious kinds of white supremacy were very common. Um, I mean, really, truly brutal uh Expressions of racism, and uh, for for that era, the idea that that you know British fair play and uh, and good treatment should be extended to native peoples was a very liberal point of view. Um, so yes, Salu was paternalistic in his outlook, but he genuinely liked and cared for the African peoples that he had spent most of his life with and and uh, most of his adult life with and uh, often put his life in their hands. So um, at any rate, here we are in, in 1890 and Salu is building a road into Mishona land. Um, King Lobangula could have stopped that. Um, he, he could have just wiped out the road-building crew but he he was really reluctant to get into a conflict with the British. Uh, Lobengula was he's often caricaturized because he was uh, you know a big fat man um, and who who liked his beer and, and suffered from gout and and uh, could appear somewhat ridiculous. But he was a, a pretty sharp and astute man, and he certainly understood the uh, um, within his scope the geopolitical games that were at play and he knew the recent history of the region. He knew that, uh, that the Zulu who were, uh, relatives of the Matabeli had, uh, had fought the British in 1879 in the Zulu war and it had some major successes, um, wiping out, uh, a good portion of one of the, the British forces sent against them, killing 1,500 British soldiers. But it had all ended with the Zulu kingdom being crushed under the British heel. And uh, and the kingdom was broken up. And, and Lobengula did not want that to happen to him and to his kingdom. And he restrained his militants who, who could have readily destroyed the pioneer column. So, very carefully scouting the terrain and, and keeping up a very tight uh, security, Salu successfully guided the cutting of this 400 mile road that would establish Rhodes' foothold in what would become Rhodesia. And uh, Rhodes fully understood what he owed to his hunter and, and scout. Um, at a luncheon in eighteen ninety six he introduced Salu as the man above all others to whom we owe Rhodesia to the british crown um typically of Rhodes, however uh his gratitude never showed up in in the fir- in the form of of financial compensation um like most narcissists uh Rhodes had little time for his tools once they'd had had served his his particular purpose, and uh, it turned out that the, the mineral riches of Rhodesia were were proving hard to reap. It's understandable that people thought that that Rhodesia would be rich gold country. It had been mined in the past. There were, was evidence of, of native mining that that uh, um, littered the landscape, but there um, there wasn't the kind of of concentrated reef of gold that there was in, uh, South Africa and that, that Rhodes had expected and was actually counting on to make his commercial colony pencil out. Um, so the colony really struggled for, for a time. And, uh, and, Salu, um, you know he, he was invested in it and uh, he he participated in what has to be uh, considered a significant amount of of spin on the news out of Rhodesia to keep up uh, stockholder interest and and uh, and kind of booming the the country. He emphasized its potential and minimized all of its difficulties and disappointments. And in 1893, the company sort of started casting its eyes towards Matabili land, where they did not have a concession, um, where Lobengula's kingdom was headquartered. And, uh, you know, surely if the gold wasn't there in, in Mashona land, surely it was there in, in Matabili land. And tensions sort of ratcheted up between the Matabili. And the 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 colonists and uh, you know there's debate to this day over um, how war ended up starting in 1893 between the British South Africa Company and the the Matabele. We'll probably delve into this a little bit uh, more heavily uh, further into the series. Uh, for right now, let me just sketch it in this way. I don't think that the war was engineered by the colonists um, as a pretext for the conquest of, of Matabili land. Um, some historians have presented it that way. There's plenty of evidence that that uh, Rhodes really did not want to get into a conflict with the Matabili, simply because the company was struggling financially and just couldn't afford it. Um, and uh, there was some genuine outrage over uh, Matabili expeditions into Mashona land, where uh, Mashona people, including Shona who were uh, who had become employees or servants of British colonists, were were murdered by the Matabili, which was a traditional activity on their part. And Lobengula quite rightly, um, from his perspective, argued that that nothing in his agreement with Rhodes (laughs) precluded uh, the Montabile from doing that. But um, there were two camps that that were living as neighbors in a very tense situation, and conflict sort of was inevitable, I think. Um, Certainly, I believe that... that, um, once conflict was triggered and it was triggered by a raid of the Matabele into Mishona land against the Mashona people. Um, I think that, that once that happened, the, uh, company administration, um, particularly Dr. Leander Jameson, who was the uh, Rhodes right-hand man in all of this, um, saw an opportunity to, um, to take advantage of the crisis, and um, to they they recruited people to fight on the basis that they would get spoils of war, um, including matabili, uh cattle and um, mining claims in matabili land. So once the die was sort of cast, um, certainly the uh, the company took advantage of the opportunity to to conquer Matabili land and, and hopefully find that elusive concentration of gold. Salu's participation in, in this uh, conflict was pretty limited. He he served as a scout. Um, he took a, a superficial wound when a Martini Henry bullet smacked him in the side and ran around his ribs to the opposite side. Um, that was a pretty lucky wound, really. Martini Henry was a uh, the old school, uh, um, British single shot military rifle, uh, through a 45 caliber bullet and, uh, uh, it could smash you up pretty good. And, uh, so he was lucky that, that, uh, it was really a grazing wound, suffered no real ill effects, but it, it kind of ended his war. And, uh, at this point salu had kind of gotten discouraged with the way things had gone in rhodesia it wasn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that he had hoped you know making his his pile as it were um he he may have had some misgivings about uh the the way the war was was conducted by uh by the british south africa company forces and uh also, he had met and fallen in love with a preacher's daughter named Gladys Maddy on a trip back home to England. And uh, he married her in 1894. He was much older than, than, than she. Um, she was only 19 years old. Um, the couple honeymooned in Switzerland and Italy and then went on to Constantinople where Salou made arrangements for a hunting expedition later in the year. And, uh, then they returned to England and, uh, where, where they were to live. And, uh, went North to Scotland to do some hunting in the highlands because no matter what, and no matter where he was, his primary passion was, was hunting. And, uh, Problem was the the you know they were trying to live this kind of upper class uh, or upper middle class British lifestyle and uh, didn't really have the the means to do it. Uh, Salut was not uh, he, he'd done okay with his uh, with his writing and his his lecturing, um, but he his, his investment in the British South Africa Company and Rhodesia had not uh, had not panned out so. They were not in the, in the kind of financial position that they could live the the lifestyle to which they aspired. So uh, when Salu received an offer um, to go back to uh, to Rhodesia and assist in managing a friend's farm and mining estate called Essex Vale, uh, Salu and Gladys uh, both returned to Rhodesia and they would walk right into a very bloody rebellion and we'll take that up in the next segment of this podcast on Frederick Courtney Salu. As always I want to thank all of our patrons and listeners for continuing to to support the podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog. Um, If you wish to become a patron the link is in the show notes and uh and i'll link to a few photographs of of um in uh on the frontier partisans blog and uh looking forward to taking up the the rest of his story and appreciate you joining me at this uh this african campfire so we'll see you down the trail